Uh, don't worry, I haven't come back. Um, <laughs> Chris is still your senior pastor. I'm, I'm a sub this morning. Uh, Chris uh, needed to take care of Becky this week, and uh, so he asked me to preach for him, which I was happy to do. I'm also happy that Chris is our senior pastor. I, I have known Chris ever since he was about that tall. And I've seen him grow in a lot of ways, physically, but uh, most of all in wisdom and knowledge. He is a good shepherd. And I'm just delighted to have him in that uh, place of leadership. I'd like to invite you to turn to the fourth chapter of Luke, if you would, please, to the story of our Lord's uh, temptation. I read a story in uh, Reader's Digest some years ago about a young Duke University student who was on his way to his party, to a party dressed uh, as the mascot of Duke University, which is, you know, is a blue devil. And uh, he lost his way. He couldn't find a house where the party was being held. And so he noticed a church alongside the road, a small church with lights on. Apparently a service was being conducted. And so he slipped into the back uh back door not wanting to disturb anyone and sat sat down waiting for the service to end but someone spotted him and shouted the alarm and people started uh, running for the exits leaping out of windows running out of doors there was an elderly gentleman that was trying to trying to make his way out of the door and he ran right into the arms of this uh, student who uh, held up, held on to him for a moment to keep him from falling down and the man struggled a little bit and got himself free and and then he stammered out, Mr. Satan, he said, as you know, I've been in this church for 50 years, but I've been on your side all along. <laughs> well, that's one way to deal with the devil, I suppose we could say. Uh, Oscar Wilde said the best way is to yield. But there's a better way, which is our Lord's way, revealed in this uh, wonderful passage that describes his temptation. Let me read it to you, the first uh, 13 verses of Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil then led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I'll I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. All three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report this uh, particular incident. Matthew and Luke offer the fullest accounts. Uh, Luke tells us that uh, 
the temptation occurred as Jesus was returning from his from his baptism by John. If you remember from last week, at his baptism, the Spirit of God descended on our Lord like a dove, and he heard that wonderful, uh, warm word of affirmation from my father, from his Father: "You are my Son. I love you." He says, "I'm, I'm well pleased uh, with you." And then he's driven into the uh, wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Matthew le- uh, uh, appends to the story at this point a purpose clause in order to be tempted uh, by Satan. It's a startling statement. Uh, but there's always meaning in everything that, that God does. He uses even temptation to perfect us. It's all part of the process. Martin Luther, whose great hymn, we just sung, said that it is prayer and meditation and temptation that make the person. Uh, God takes the worst that Satan can do and turns it into good, purifies us, teaches us, corrects us, tests our metal, shows us the stuff of which we're made, shows us where we are in, in, in the process. So uh, there was a purpose behind Satan. Uh, Satan's temptation. The father permitted it because he wanted to make the son stronger and better than he ever was before. Now, the, the question we need to ask at, the, at this point is, who is this uh, devil who, who taunts our Lord? Well, people tend to fall on two sides of that, uh, of that question. They polarize over it. Some are obsessed with the devil. That's all they can think about. They see him every, everywhere. And others don't think much about him at all. They just ignore him. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Uh, Some people are so engrossed with the devil, that's all they can see. They see demons everywhere. They even, they even attribute to demons those things that ought to be attributed to the flesh and to the world. The epitome of, of that obsession is a statement, the devil made me do it. I heard a story once about a, a woman that came back from a shopping uh, spree and she had a, had a new dress with her. And her husband said, well, hun, can you afford that dress? I don't think we can. And she said, well, the devil made me do it. He said, ooh, that looks so good on you. He said, well, hon, uh, why didn't you say, get me, get behind me, Satan? She said, I did. And he got back there and he said, ooh, looks good from back here, too. <laughs> now, that's one camp into which a lot of people fall, just a preoccupation with demons, the same obsession that, that, that you see during the medieval period when people put gargoyles on the roofs of their houses to scare away demons. But on the other side, there are those that don't take, take Satan seriously at all. And those are often the people that are, that are duped by Satan. And they die. Because that's what uh, Satan is all about. Uh, Satan's a real thing. He's a real McCoy. I have that on the authority of our Lord Jesus and the apostles and, and the prophets, regardless of what I think and what, what the scientific me- method tells me and what my reason tells me. Satan is a, is a real being of immense power and intelligence who 
as Luther said, seeks to work us well. He is the explanation for every hideous, evil act that goes on in this world. He's the source for everything that's, that's bad and wrong about our existence. Physical illness, mental disease, domestic violence, divorce, child abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse, deviant sexual behaviors, pride, greed, selfish ambition, disease, death. These are the works of the devil. I love to tell physicians when I, or, or dentists or others in the health professions when I'm with them, what, you, what you're doing is undoing the works of the devil. It's a noble task. It's behind everything that's wrong uh, with our world. Paul writes about what he calls the mystery of lawlessness. A mystery in New Testament terms is a secret that God reveals to us. It's one of his secrets. Uh, It's something we could not know apart from Revelation. And the mystery of lawlessness is that behind all all lawlessness in our land is is an evil, malignant personality. Uh, It's because people don't recognize that, that we cannot maintain law and order in our our communities. There's a a force, a malignant force back there that is not susceptible to human effort. I've often said that life's like a Punch and Judy show. Puppeteer puts a villain up on the stage and we boo and hiss and and, uh, pick up a baseball bat, take the puppet out. Puppeteer simply reaches down and gets another puppet. The people out there that we think of as evil are victims of the evil one. They've been victimized to do his will. We have to go around behind the scenes and take out the puppeteer, which is what our Lord teaches us to do in his uh, temptation. Uh, Jesus described the devil this way. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Uh, John Milton, in his poem, Paradise Lost, uh, says that the devil's creed is, Evil be thou my good. And God gave him his request. It became an utterly wicked, evil personality. Uh, he, he originally was an angel, as you know, a created being. We Christians are not dualists. We do, we do not believe in two equal and opposite powers. A good power and an evil power. There's one God. And then there are hosts of other creations. And Satan is just just a creation. That's all. One of the created beings. Uh, Powerful? Yes. Utterly evil? Yes. But uh, greater is he that is in you, Scripture says, than he that is in the world. Satan is a ruthless, restless, psychopathic killer. He despises the people that God loves, that's us, and he makes it his life's mission to ruin the quality of human life. That's what he wants to leave behind, is ruined human lives. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we think of Satan and, and have trivialized him, I think, to some extent, by portraying him as kind of a comic prankster with, in red tights with a pitchfork in his hand, when in reality... He is a a, a monstrous madman, crazy as a bedbug, mad as a hatter, 
uh, just a wild psychopathic killer, uh, mass murderer, like Carol Chessman or Son of Sam, or the, the person that comes to mind is Hannibal Lecter, that horrible creature in the Silence of the Lambs, a psychiatrist turned psychopathic killer who not only killed his victims, he ate them. That's why he was called Hannibal the Cannibal. And when I, uh, when I first read that story, I thought of Peter's words, that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. He's a cannibal. He wants to destroy and obliterate human life. He wants to devour us. He's hungry for human flesh. He's after us in season and out of season. He poaches on us. We're his prey. He's a, he's a great hunter. And uh, human beings are his prey. And we must not trivialize him. We must realize that he is a being of immense power. Not as powerful as God. You know, we were taught in Sunday school that there's a, there's a black dog, a white dog, and whoever you say sick him to wins. You know, it's, re- it's really not like that at all. It's like a huge, immense white dog and this little Mexican hair, hairless, you know, jumping up and down, yapping, making all this noise. And the big dog just goes, that's enough. That's the picture we have to have of, of the relationship of God and Satan. And yet, we have no greater foe in this world. He's behind all the awful, terrible things that, that happen to us. But like most psychopaths, he's a charmer, shrewd, cunning, suave. Uh, Shakespeare has Hamlet say, The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Francis Bacon said he's a gentleman. Has good manners. Doesn't come on to us as the evil one. Subtle. Feeds us a pack of lies, but does so with great subtlety and cunning. Just bending the truth slightly. Uh, distorting it just a little bit. And the greatest lie is not a 180 degree lie. That is just a complete opposite statement, but something with a slight twist on it. C.S. Lewis, I think, was the first to introduce the idea of bent into our theological uh, categories. He's working off an analogy of trees. You know, if a tree is bent a little bit every day, it will assume a grotesque shape after a while. So if Satan does, he bends by degrees. And the effect uh, is to ruin us. He's a consummate liar. Apart from Revelation, we'd never detect him. There isn't one of us wise enough to, uh, to detect his lies. Uh, we, read, we sang a moment ago, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But the good news is that there is someone who is more than his equal. It is our Lord Jesus. Greater is he that is in you, we're told, than he that is in, in the world. John said, the reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the devil's works. He's doing it now, and he will get it done one of these days. Paul promises in the book of Romans that one day God will crush Satan under our feet. But in the meantime, he's creating havoc. He's like Hitler after uh, D-Day, knowing that he was finished, and yet fighting on insanely, burning, pillaging, blackening the earth, destroying, and, uh, and yet knowing that his end was in sight. So, uh, in the meantime, while we wait for our Lord to finish off the adversary, we need to be watchful. 
All the scripture tells us. Watch out. Be careful. Something wicked this way comes. Be vigilant. Don't be fooled. Don't be tricked. I heard a story once about uh, an air traffic controller that accidentally put two airplanes uh, on the same runway. One was landing, one was taking off. Uh, when the pilot who was landing called, called in the oversight to the controller, he radioed back, Y'all be careful out there, you hear? And that's God's word to us. Something wicked is after you. Be careful out there. Now let's look at the temptation. Because what we have in, in, in these 13 verses really is Satan's strategy, which is to lie and deceive, and his ultimate goal, which is to destroy. We have to keep in mind what his aim is. I had a young woman come up after the first service and told me about her sister who had been seduced into sin and actually into demon worship and ultimately demonization because she she was convinced that de- that the devil wanted the very best for her. And what we have to understand is that our Lord is telling us that he does not want that for us. He wants to destroy us. And what we've got to do is learn to recognize his voice when we hear it. We're not always aware that it's Satan behind the media and the other messages that, that we receive that will seduce us into sin and ultimately destroy us. Now, the traditional site of the uh, temptation is just above uh, Jericho. If you've, if you've been to Israel and you're down in that sink in which Jericho is located, down along the Jordan River, and you ask your guide where the Mount of Temptation is, he'll point vaguely off to the west somewhere, and there's this broken rugged range of mountains that rise out of the Jordan Valley. There is not a bush, not a tree, not a blade of grass there. And uh, it probably wasn't much better in, in Jesus' day. Tradition has been a place where mystics and monks went for retreats. And that's where our Lord was for 40 days in that terrible, desolate, uh, lonely place. Mark says he was with wild beasts. There were predators in those days, lions. Other animals that preyed on human beings. But the greatest predator was was Satan himself, who harassed and hounded Jesus for 30 days. Ceaseless hunter. Um, You know, as I thought about this story this past week, what struck me was the audacity of Satan. To take on the high and, and holy Son of God, the sinless, perfect, Man, what nerve, what audacity. But as I thought about it, I realized Satan is no respecter of person. He takes everybody on. doesn't make any difference who you are, rich, poor, young, old, uh, male, female, adult, children, adolescents. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference who you are or where you are or what you're doing. Uh, he's after your flesh. He, he wants to destroy you. And making a difference whether you're in the dumps or on a roll. He's out to get you. Uh, there's a monastery up in the hills, uh, Los Altos Hills, behind uh, our home where we used to live in California. I used to go up there on day retreats just, just to get away for a while and have some solitude. And the uh, brothers up there let me go, uh, come into the inside, and there was a little enclosed garden. I used to sit in there and uh, just with the scriptures or a book and read and think and pray. And I was sitting in there one day reading the New Testament. 
was having a quiet time, just enjoying myself thoroughly, and I had this feeling somebody was looking at me, and I looked around, and I, about 18 inches in front of me, there was a snake. And his tail wrapped around a live oak, the limb of a live oak tree, and it was hanging straight down, and his head was up like that, and it was looking at me. It was the weirdest feeling I'd ever had. It was a terrible feeling of deja vu, you know. <laughs> so the feeling, you know, where have I had this happen to me before? And then I realized what it was. You know, it's that ancient, primitive, racial memory that we have of a garden where Satan first made his approach. I just had to laugh. I thought, here I am in this secluded garden, fellowshipping with the Lord, and the snake shows up. It doesn't matter whether you're in a garden or in a desert. See, Satan attacked our Lord in the desert. He attacked him in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It doesn't make difference who you are or where you are. You're always vulnerable. You're always subject to attack. That's why we need to be watchful, be wary. Now, I want to talk about the temptations of Jesus, but I want, to, I want to come at this in a little different way. Rather than try to determine what each of the temptations mean, I, at least this is the way I see the temptations. This is not a comprehensive, this is not an attempt to give us a, contra, a comprehensive strategy of Satan and how we meet him on every front. Uh, these are three temptations. There may have been 300 temptations. There are attempts, you know, to try to identify these temptations with John's three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Perhaps you can find those things there. There are also attempts to identify these three temptations with the temptations of Eve. She saw that the apple was, was good to the eyes, it was good to taste, and it was designed to make her wise. So, you know, there and, and there may be some parallels, that, uh, parallels there. I, I, I wouldn't want to say that there aren't. But as I thought about this, I thought, well, this is a sample. These are three things that happened to our Lord. Any number of things could have happened. But there is there's something more here. There's a strategy for defeating, de- uh, defeating the devil. Now Luke tells us uh, in the first temptation that our Lord had eaten nothing for 40 days. And then in, a, in what I consider to be a masterpiece of understatement, he says afterward he was hungry. And so Satan sidles up to him and he says, see those rocks, turn them into bread. And, and Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, and Matthew fills in the next phrase, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, I will not satisfy myself in other than God-ordained ways, that the physical does not come ahead of the spiritual, man does not live by bread alone, the spiritual comes first, and I will wait for God to satisfy me. And that's a word for all of us who are trying to satisfy ourselves illicitly. You know, the, the, uh, the young uh, teenage woman uh, who's surrounded by her peers, all of whom are sexually active, and Satan says, come on, Virginia, why wait? Uh, the junior high kid, who's very pure conscious, very lonely, isolated. And Satan says, do drugs, you'll feel so much better about yourself when you do. See, but it the end result is death. He wants to kill. The lie sounds so good. See? He wants to kill. Now, that's the first line of, uh, of attack. And I think all of us uh, seem to be a bit more aware of those attempts to seduce the flesh thing I want you to notice is that, that, and this is true of all three of the temptations, that our Lord, 
quoted scripture, now this is very important, not to Satan, but to himself. Uh, when I was a child in Sunday school, we used to sing this little chorus about the gospel gun, shoot it at Satan if you want to make him run. Now that's not, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not quoting at scripture to put him on the run. What he's doing is quoting scripture to himself. He's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of what God has said, and he is saying, I will obey that word. Satan says, turn, uh, turn these stones into bread. Jesus says, I will not do that. I will not satisfy myself in anything other than God's way. When it's time for him to feed me, he will feed me. In the meantime, I will wait upon him. See, he's quoting scripture to himself. He's doing what David so often did in his psalms. He was preaching to himself, talking to himself, and, and saying, I, I will obey. See, it's more than just putting the word in our hearts. It's putting our words in our hearts and then submitting ourselves to it. Now, the second temptation, uh, in the second temptation, Satan surveys the kingdoms of this world, and he says, oh, it's all mine. It's true. I've been lying. He's a pretender. He's a usurper, but Satan has power. And if men and women want it bad enough, he'll give it. But it does entail uh, prostituting themselves, prostrating themselves before Satan, prostituting their values, their dignity. Uh, the man who says, I, you know, I'm going to get wealth and power at any cost, uh, sells his family down the river, destroys his health, uh, cuts some moral corners, um, he's prostrating himself before Satan. He's selling out, see? It's very subtle because the message comes to us, this is the way you can provide best for your family. And you can even retire and, you know, and live in style, and then you'll have time for your family. Of course, you don't. The patterns you establish when you're young, you carry into, into your older years, your latter years. And, and men just sell their, their families out in order to make a buck or to gain power. That's Satan's subtle temptation. Do this and you'll live, do this, and you'll, you'll be satisfied. You'll be happy. And Jesus says, no, no. My Bible tells me you shall have no other gods before me. So I'm not going to prostrate myself before you. I'm not going to prostitute my values. I'm not going to sell out. See? You see what he's doing again? He's not quoting Scripture to Satan. Satan knows the Bible as well as, as Jesus did, does. He's quoting it to himself. God said, you shall have no other gods before me, and therefore I will not bow to any god. Uh, the last temptation, uh, T.S. Eliot said, is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. This is a tough, this is a tough one for me. Je Satan takes Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple, which is a projection out over the Kidron Valley. It was about a 400-foot drop straight down to the floor of the valley, and he says, hurl yourself off of this, uh, off the pinnacle, I don't know why. I don't, you know, some, some have said, well, you know, as he fluttered down, the angels would lift him up and people would be impressed. And, and it, was, it was a temptation to gain, to, to vain glory, you know, to glorify himself in some way. That may be true. I don't know. I've never had this temptation. I've, I've never had the temptation to leap off of strong, uh, tall buildings or even to leap over them in a single bound. You know, I, I suppose that, you know, people that, uh, throw themselves to their death or people that are doing drugs and, and jump out of windows because they think they can fly perhaps are influenced in some way along these lines. Uh, 
I, I don't know what's going on here, frankly. Uh, Luke doesn't explain it to us. It could be that uh, Satan is saying, do something dramatic uh, and, and force God to, to come through for you. you know, make him prove that he's faithful to his word. Here he quotes Psalm 91. and says, God has promised that he's going to lift you up. Yeah, I don't know. I was in a meeting once in California and some speaker said, I believe. Uh, that, that if it's not my time to go home and I'm standing in the middle of Bayshore Freeway at peak commute traffic, then God would divert cars around me and I would be unharmed. And this uh, kind of loony friend I was sitting with leaned over to me and he said, Friend, if he's standing out in the middle of Bayshore Freeway during peak commute, commute times, that's the time he's going home. Um, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I, but here's the thing that struck me about this temptation. Satan knows the Bible too. He believes it and he trembles. He knows much better than we do. And he will often quote scripture to us. The last refuge of scoundrels is not politics, no matter what they tell you. The last refuge of scoundrels is religion. It's people who will seize upon one verse and twist it and use it for their own evil ends. Those uh, people that have enriched themselves because they're convinced, or at least they convince others, that it's God's will to make them filthy rich. Forgetting what God has said about ripping off widows and orphans and others in order to get rich. You see, there's always a, a counteracting principle. This is what the, ref, the Reformers call the analogy of Scripture. You have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And I think the point of this temptation is that Satan can even use Scripture to tempt us. Look at all the awful things that have been done throughout history to the greater glory of God. The uh, Crusades, pogroms against Jews, slavery uh, in, in, in the South. You know, they, they always found a verse to justify the, those practices, but they ignored other verses. And that's why when Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus to get him to do something that was patently wrong... Jesus came back with the statement, it is also written. Again, it is written. You see, he compared Scripture with, with Scripture. Now, uh, at this point, we're told Satan left him. Uh, when the devil had finished all this tempting he, attempting, he left him until an opportune time. But he didn't give up. Uh, if there's anything else, uh, anything that we learn from his passage, it's that Satan will hassle us and and harrow us um, until, until we die. Um, he harassed our Lord all through his ministry. He had demons assault him. He had demons oppose him when he spoke in synagogues. He had a lynch mob trying to kill him. Uh, there was a storm that almost took him to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Satan was behind that on a couple of occasions. He followed him into the upper room. He followed him into the Garden of Gethsemane. He followed him right up to the cross. And we can count on the fact that Satan will never give up. Uh, when we stand at the door of death, there, there his ghouls will be to, to instill in this fear of death, see, which he has overcome. He never gives up. He is, as Bacon said, Sabbathless Satan, relentless, ceaseless, ruinous, enemy of, of humankind. Uh, so uh, what can we learn? What can we learn from all of this? I mean, what, what's the message that we can take away? 
two principles I want to leave with you. The first is that we, we must meet temptation at the door. Um, uh, Thomas Kempis uh, said this, we, we do better in dealing with temptations if we keep an eye on them in the very beginning. Temptations are more easily overcome if they are never allowed to enter our minds. One simple thought can enter the mind and start the process. We cannot stop these fiery darts from going through our minds. Satan is, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And Satan can't read minds, I'm convinced. But Satan operates in a, in a realm where he can introduce thoughts into our mind. I don't know the process, but I know he can do that. The thought is not sin. The thought is an inducement to sin. Sometimes we feel guilty because a lustful thought, um, uh, you know, a harsh thought, an evil thought flies through our mind. You, you can't stop that. Luther said uh, those thoughts are like birds flying over your head. You can't stop them from doing that, but you can stop them from building nests in your hair. Because what happens is that when the thought, don't laugh, I know it doesn't apply to me, but I... <laughs> When the thought goes through your head, you have you, you can do one of two things. You can either entertain it or you can meet it with the Word of Scripture. And when we entertain it, then our imagination comes into play. Imagination is the Im- image-making factor in our minds. And we take that thought and we embellish it and we enhance it and we expand upon it and we let it slash back and forth in our in our minds and we love it. And we cherish it, and then we act upon it. Because our most predominant thought determines our immediate action. Jesus said it's out of the heart. He said that's the Greek word for the mind. Out of the mind that anger, murder, greed, malice, wrath, avarice, all those sins proceed. So what we have to do is to meet temptation... At the moment, it, it, it enters uh, enters our mind. Uh, you know how it is when you're on a sled. You know, there's a certain point where you're beyond, where you're out of control. Uh, you can you can stop the thing when you when you're pushing yourself up to the edge of the hill, and you can stop at the first few feet down the hill. But after a, a little bit, it, you get out of control. That's what happens with thoughts. So what we have to do when the thought enters our mind is to meet it at the door. And to meet it with the word of Scripture. See? Now again, it's not that we quote Scripture at, at the devil, but we remind ourselves of a truth and we submit uh, ourselves to it. When Satan appears and says to us, Has God really said, you know, that's one of his ploys to introduce doubt in our mind, we respond with the word, It's written. He has. He has. Uh, when God asks us to do something difficult and we don't want to do it, we meet him at the door with our Lord's, st- with Paul's statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, when he whispers in our ear, God doesn't love you anymore, we meet him with that wonderful word in Hebrews, God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Um, when we enter a, a room and we feel dumpy and fat and we want to slide into a corner somewhere and be anonymous, and he, he reminds us that we're very precious to him, very important, that he loves us like, like you wouldn't believe. 
You see what I'm saying? That when these thoughts come into our minds, the thing we must do immediately is to meet those thoughts at the door with a word of Scripture. We sang a moment ago, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Pregnant phrase, one little word will fell him. Not that we quote scripture at the devil. But we remind ourselves of the truth of God and submit ourselves to it. I saw a far side cartoon one time. It showed this huge woolly mammoth laying on its side with a little tiny arrow sticking out of its, uh, out of its side. And there were these two awestruck cavemen standing there with bows in their hands looking at what they had done. And one said to the other, we gotta remember that spot. <laughs> Satan has a soft, unprotected underbelly. And it's the word of God. It, it, it flies straight to the mark. One little word will, will fell him. And so to that end, we, we have to give ourselves to knowing that word. We must say with the psalmist, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not just memorizing it, but memorizing it and submitting ourselves to it. We must meditate day and night on the word, as the psalmist who wrote Psalm 1 did. We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, Paul says. We have to know the word, because it's the word. Uh, it is the word by which we uh, we meet Satan's attacks. Uh, some of you remember the Homer story of uh, Odysseus in, in his in his poem, The Odyssey. Uh, it's not a poem, actually, it's a story of the Odyssey. And Odysseus is trying to get back to his wife and kitties, and he's having a hard time of it. And uh, he runs into Circe, who turns men into pigs. And uh, she uh, turns all of his men into pigs, and then she relents and turns them back into men. And then she gives uh, Odysseus some counsel. She says, uh, you have greater dangers ahead. On ahead lie the sirens. He's uh, seductive. Uh, women cause men to leap overboard and swim to their uh, destruction. So what you have to do is stuff your ears with wax. And you need to tie yourself to the mast so you won't uh, destroy yourself, which is what Odysseus did. But he, but he did something else, if you remember the story. He had with him Orpheus, the musician. And uh, he did have his men stuff their ears with wax, and, and he did tie himself to the mast. But he had Orpheus sit on the deck and play on his, uh, his harp, and uh, and sing uh, and make a melody so sweet, Homer puts it, that uh, he would not be tempted by the siren song. So I just want to say, when Satan begins to croon, and he will, maybe the next uh, instant in your experience or as you walk out the door or as you're home this afternoon, then uh, remember to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing yourself with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Sing God's songs to yourself. That's the way we drowned out the siren songs of the devil. Well, let's pray. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, we're told. 
And we do want to be armed. Uh, we know that we're no match for the evil one. We're weak, frail, fallible, fallen, uh, sinful, wretchedly sinful human beings. We have no strength to stand. And we face an enemy uh, who has no equals. He has no peers in, in this life. But there is one who is greater than he. And he belongs to us. He indwells us. And we just thank you for that indwelling presence. And we, we thank you for your word that gives us a, a way to respond to those uh, terrible assaults of Satan. Uh, keep us from, from uh, being fooled and from being fools and from uh, running to our own destruction. Help us, through your word, to know how to distinguish between truth and error. And when we, when we hear Satan's lie, to meet him with a word of truth and to submit ourselves to it. It's a hard task we have living in this world. The air gets thick here and we forget. So uh, we ask that we would, uh, we would remember and we would keep singing to ourselves uh, the songs that we find in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.